I know. I know. And we're here. Welcome. Welcome. I hope you all can see me a little bit. Maybe that's better. Well, if I sit right here in front of the window, that's better. Oh, you kind of look, well, as long as you stay right there, because otherwise you get too much halo. Right? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Welcome to the Friday Grief Chat, everyone. Welcome. It's nice to have you here. Deb, you are in the snow today, is that right? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Uh, we're working toward it. Uh, I just talked to our speaker for Sunday, and we are going to broadcast from her house with some nice. music at her house. Um, translation, who in her family she could rope into doing things. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we do them these days. I know, I know. That's exactly what I think. And I'm broadcasting here because um, many of you don't know, I collect different costumes and things. And I have a unicorn head that my cat has crawled into sleeping on my little face. And so uh, I have a unicat. Couch over there, so I said, "Well, I'll just be here, and everybody will forgive me for that." Let the cat be comfy. We wouldn't want to disrupt the cat. No, no, I don't want to disrupt the cat. <laughs> um. So, Jill, I hear you have a book in your hands. Do you have it right I there? Do. It's right behind me. I don't know if you can see that. Oh yeah, the rebellious widow. The rebellious widow is in pre-sale. It is on Barnes and Noble and Amazon and on my website. And it's super exciting to finally have it out there. It's I, I was just talking to Stacy about it this morning and she said, you know, you had to have two wives die to write that book. You need to be proud that you did it. <laughs> oh, very good. Sorry. Someone just called me. Oh no. I'm so, I'm I apologize for the sound. I'm gonna there was no sound down right, right now. And you were saying about Stacy. I apologize. I That's okay. Person. Yeah. Stacy is my current wife, and we were talking about the book, and she said, you know, you had to have two wives die to write that book and do all that time with hospice. Right. You need to be exactly. able to talk about it and be glad that it's out there. Yeah. And I think of all the people, uh, women or men, that – are widows and you will help them you will help them know that they're okay because they do not follow xyz rules and uh that was part of my topic uh that i thought of today because i didn't get a chance to write it but i found the book that it was in oh. and, I picked this up at one of, you know, the conferences that you and I go to, and it's Words That Hurt the Bereaved, and it's by Patricia K. Grace Probst and Coral Popowitz, and I don't know that it, does it show up backwards or frontwards? Uh, forwards. Words okay. That Hurt the Bereaved. Got it. Right. But I got to say something, just not this. And... First, I wanted to ask, like, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your book and 
saying some of the things that uh, you as a rebellious widow learned and uh, some things you wish people wouldn't do. Do you I'm mind sure talking for a few minutes about that? Not at all. And I want to also make sure that we say Mark Laswell is here with us. Um, hi, Mark. So we say hi. Um, boy, the book is written both before and after someone dies. It's got pieces for how to get ready through a terminal illness, what to do to make sure terminal illness goes as well as it can, which sounds mm -hmm. weird, but terminal illnesses can go badly if they're not well managed. Right. And then through the dying process and what that looks like, and then the after and the grief response and how to do that so you get to do it your way, not the way people intend for you to do. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning part, what I found was because I was personally surrounded by my own hospice team that I'd worked with for several years, I got probably a greater understanding that we were a couple and needed to be treated as a couple. But in general, I find that intimate partners who are losing an intimate partner are treated more like a patient and um, an extra nurse. And there's not a lot of acknowledgement of, you know, there is an intimate relationship here and these folks need to be treated as a couple. And we need to make sure we're encouraging that. Even if it's just making sure a hospital bed is pulled up to the other bed. So I talked to another hospice nurse this morning. She said, so you don't divide bed partners. They're next to each other. Right. Um, right. And then the dying process, lots of people don't understand what dying looks like, sounds like, smells like. And so I did, but lots of people don't. And that can be scary. Afterward, what I found was, and that's where the book came from. There are a lot of rules for grief. There are grief rules. rules. They're unwritten yeah. and they're everybody else's rules. And they make no sense because they contradict each other. And as I was writing this book, which started from a bunch of blogs I wrote while both of them were sick and dying and afterward, because I got tired of telling people all the time, it was just easier to write a blog, post it. If you want to know what's going on, go read it. It's on you. I'm not going to return a phone call. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm too stressed. I'm too sad. Whatever. I don't have time. This is what's going on. And so as I was organizing and putting it together, I was explaining the grief rules to the woman who edited with me and she said, I'm getting a head spin. You're, you're not supposed to do things too fast, but you're not to do things too slow. You're supposed to not keep things too long, but you're also not supposed to get rid of them too fast. You're supposed to not make changes, except if you make changes, you need to make them. How do you do that? And that's, that's why I wrote it because widows especially have their power taken from them by well-meaning, well-intended, caring people who have never, ever walked that walk. Mm -hmm. and Everybody's got an opinion. Do. They do, and their opinion is always right. Mm. And if you don't follow their opinion, then you hurt their feelings, and then they bail. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I just started another grief group today with a group of folks. I do eight-week grief groups. And the first thing we talked about was how many people, which is 100%, lose people when someone dies uh -huh. because they don't, they are not comfortable with the first, with the dying part, or they're uncomfortable with the grief process. It, for some reason, they bail and people bail because you don't follow their rules. Can I add to that, Jill? Yes. <clears throat> I was part of a study at the University of Illinois 
uh, many, 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 many moons ago. And it was about divorced women. And it was so interesting to be part of this study and they would do something like every six months, I would get a free pizza, right? <laughs> <laughs> and being, uh, not having any money as a student nurse, it was great. And so what I learned from that and also losses that don't necessarily deal with death, losses like the divorce, which is mm -hmm. the study I was part, losses of becoming a step family, losses of, <clears throat> of uh, getting married, become moving from singlehood to marriedhood. All having right. Kids. Having kids, having kids in different stages of your life. So here's what I've learned about every six months, there is a change. So if you want to know who will really be in your life, wait 18 months. <laughs> it all shakes out. It does. And it does. And, uh, I learned that when um, I was part of a church and I, uh, various reasons, it was time for me to move on. And that, yeah, that's, that's really hard. So about every 18 months, and it's, I mean, not every 18 months, about every six months, there's a change. And <clears throat> another part of that change is sometimes people will move out and move back into your life in a in a more cohesive fashion mm -hmm. if that makes sense they reintegrate but sometimes in a different place or different yeah, role exactly or with a better understanding of what you have been through or you understanding what they've been through depending on the situation right. mm -hmm. and sometimes people who used to be center permanently go to the outskirts somewhere Mm -hmm. Because there's just been too much of a schism, but there's still a relationship, so you keep that part there. When yeah. I was when I was uh, uh, taking church classes and <clears throat> communicating with a minister, I learned about your A, B, and C congregation. If you're in the A congregation, that's about uh, ten percent of the people do ninety percent of the work, or something like that, and. Uh, and it keeps getting less as you move into the B and the C. And some C's move into the B's or, but I just want to say, it's that constant flow of energy. <coughs> Excuse me. Depending yeah. on, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is when you are in the grief <coughs> process, which is not forever, that's the other piece. I, I don't do grief as forever. And neither does Deb. It's you do the work and then you reorganize and you, you move into where you need to be. You integrate it. You integrate it and who you need to be and become. It may be someone different than what you were expecting. But if you do grief in a way that you're in charge of it, you get to decide. Right? Instead of that chaos and people telling you how to do it, you get the, you get the decision process. You know, <clears throat> um, not all men and not all women. So I want to just say that right away. When you uh, are split off from a partner, even a business partner, 
-hmm. or a church partner. It's like you have to try on a bunch of hats. Um, I'm going to use a stereotype here. If a man leaves a relationship, he might go get that fast car that he dreamt of, you know, or right. he, he may, or a woman might do that too. Um, <clears throat> but the stereotypes, there's a little grain of truth in those particular stereotypes, such as, uh, I know one person, all of a sudden she started wearing makeup again. She got her nose prayers and she started looking at, uh, four kids later, she started looking at how she could feel more beautiful in the world. And the comments were, well, look, she got her, she's wearing more makeup. Isn't that disgusting? Not even realizing that the, the person that left her uh may have had some issues you know what i mean they're they right. want to blame a survivor mm -hmm. survivor of a relationship and this woman is just gorgeous and she's come into her mom she laughs more she's able to do that because with uh counseling and other support she's been able to integrate that loss and become more of who she is. She's experiencing post-loss growth. Right. Instead of post-loss disruption or um, right. PTSD, she's really growing into it, which is really what we should want for every survivor. You know, I, I praise her every step of the way. I mean, even looking at her particular church beliefs, I just, I just, so happy for her to take this time in her life to uh, go through, disassemble, reassemble, whatever feels more integrity with themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. right. It's a matter of making your own decisions and <clears throat> figuring out where you are. And that's one of the great things about doing grief work with someone is, okay, now that you've gotten through what is inarguably one of the worst experiences in your life, even if it went well, someone that you love is no longer here on this planet and you've walked them out. And so you are now here. What did you want to do before you even knew this person, whether it was before you gave birth to that child or you married that spouse or whatever that relationship is, uh -huh. what did you want to do before that? Uh -huh. Right now I didn't go back to being the veterinarian. I thought I was going to be in fifth grade. But I did reintegrate some other parts of me that I could do, right? I have another friend who became a widow, and <clears throat> she says, well, I'm just not being creative. And I go, hold off there, sister. Because what she did is she got one of the rooms, she took everything in this one little cramped room, moved it out. She took a part of furniture that she's, had in her family for a long time, having someone put that together and, and put it up in this little room. She painted this room. She found a perfect rug, a chair. And it's like, wow. I said, so don't tell me you haven't been creative. You might not have been, you know, Sistine Chapel here, but you have been integrating, letting go. And that's part of the 
creative process, whether it's a craft project, whether it's cleaning something, whether it's cooking, you're integrating different things and good on her. Right. We've got Penny Millspa here and she said, thank you. After one relationship, the first thing I did was cut my hair. Previous partner wanted me to be the good wife at home and the long hair was his thing. Cutting it let me feel like me again. Absolutely. Why do you think oh, I have Penny. hair? <laughs> Penny's, Penny's been at the same conferences you and I have been. Hmm. So, and she is one of the first friends that I made at one of these conferences. So, thanks, Penny. And what? Absolutely. Good right. for you. Good for it's, you. It's a reorganize, reintegrate. I've got a, a friend who's a therapist and experienced a sudden unexpected divorce last year. And we went from that, oh my goodness, what happened to my world to repainting, redoing bits on a budget, making a space that was made for a, a different experience into her own. And it looks like her now. Mm -hmm. And her hair shifting a little bit and her makeup shifting a little bit. And she's gone from this to, look, this is my space. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. that's that reintegrating reorganizing right. I'm stepping into where I need to go right you know I I want to also mention those reintegrations also happen when one both your parents are dead yeah adult and orphans adult orphans or as I would say I was the top of the food chain I'm next in line to die, right? <laughs> and it was the matriarch like, now. Let's get that right. Yeah. And it's sort of confusing and how I should be and not. And I notice two things happen. One, when you have no more parents and your friends have parents, you don't mean to be, but you can be a little jealous. Why aren't my parents living as long? Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two, if you happen to come into money, your friends look at you differently. They're oh, like, yeah. oh, we're not equals anymore. Oh, and they make all these assumptions. And that was really difficult for me. And I just, it was just hard. That's, that's all I got to say. It was hard friends moving from that A to that B to that C congregation. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Same thing when you become a step family. Uh, there may be people around you who don't get it. They have their own ideas about what a family should be. And uh, they're not comfortable around you the same way because you see things differently. Right. We have a comment here from Kate Piper, who's a friend of mine. She's a therapist in Northern California. She does a lot of work with first responders and she does crisis incident stuff mm -hmm. with law enforcement a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. She says, I know what that's like. I'm the only one left in my family. It feels like the math said I should die next. It's a, it's a, there's a thing. Like here. A, it's a thing here. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I feeling like I was the matriarch of the family. I was getting more attached to, say, my brother's family, and I needed to be there, and I'm thinking about moving, and I'm like, I can't move because I still have this here. And 
it was like this real torn feeling. And then you move into something else and then you feel responsible. Like you got to be the grandma and the auntie to the nieces and nephews. And it was an odd feeling. It was just that's where the boundaries come in with that grief process. Right. Right. What happens if the matriarch in your family is, you know, the one who does everything for everybody and you don't want to do all that energy. Maybe now time in that reorganization and in that system for each of those individual families to take on the taking care of their own and their own youngins and the youngins below them. And your role is just to make sure everyone stays connected with those Zoom calls that we're all so familiar with now. Maybe that's where we belong. Right? I've had several clients say, oh, I did all of this before. And now they still want me to do this. And I'm not able to do all this for everybody. I'm I'm going through my stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's being aware. And if the only thing you can do for your friend, and I say if the only, because there's always more, if you can validate, they go. I've heard this feeling before from somebody else. And this is actually not comfortable, but normal. Yeah. I shouldn't say not comfortable and normal, not but normal and normal. Absolutely. Kate added her parents were 40 years older than her and her brother died when he was 58. So most people didn't understand where she was in that moment. Right. Which which is very much like I I did lose my sister-in-law, Sandy, this week. Um, she battled cancer for four and a half really horrible years. And so um, and she slipped away peacefully. And I'm so grateful for that. But their parents have been gone for a long time. And she's one of the elder siblings. So there's a couple siblings left uh, who are about my age. And then all the youngers. So everybody's in their 50s and below. And now they're going to have to reconfigure how the whole family system is going to work and how are they going to remain connected and who's going to be that connector piece. Mm -hmm. And uh, once again, Jill, I know I said it several times, but my heart goes out to yours. I appreciate that. I brought it up just as an example. Kate says, I'm not a good matriarch. I gave up that crown and just hunkered down to take care of my own family boundaries for the rest of the extended family. You know, I'll, I'll tell you that, uh, Sometimes after a matriarch of the family goes, the family splits apart. Oh, yeah. The only only reason they were hanging together was for that matriarch. And then they go like, I never liked that brother anyway. You know, (laughs) you know, I hate to say it like that. But and there are those boundary lines. There are those boundary lines. And we Um, need them. We need them for healthy grief. Because you're going to grieve differently than the other people in the family. And Kate grieves differently than people in her family. You have Mm -hmm. to be able to do it your way. Mm -hmm. Um, I was 41 when I became an adult orphan. And my brother was, well, I'm five years older than him. So he was 35, 36, something like that. And uh, it was, it took several years to figure out some stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Our so. extra kid lost her birth mom 
who raised her. She was just an extra kid of ours in addition. Um, New Year's of last year. That's and right. She's not anywhere near 35 yet. And her dad died when she was 13. Mm -hmm. So she's had to really reconfigure her whole life. She moved. She created her own space in a new apartment in a new city. She got, she moved to be closer to some, to her BFF, which is fabulous. She got a new job away from people who had not been supportive when her mm -hmm. mom was sick. So she, mm -hmm. she, she reorganized all those pieces. She reorganized how she's take caring, taking care of her health and her um, nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. And then this year after the first, it's been a year, she started ordering furniture of her own instead of mom's old furniture. So she's starting to, I don't need to hold on to stuff. Now I can have my own. Mm -hmm. that, that's exactly the process. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, is it okay if I shift? Please. A little to, I want to shift to this. And I'm going to, we've done this before. These are things you say and you don't say. <laughs> uh, so what I'll do is, oh. So they divide it up into like spiritual and then just advice giving that starts with you should and then platitudes and grief gossip. Oh, yeah. Grief oh, gossip. That. <clears throat> and then move on, move forward, get over it. Comparison. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's all about me. And then children. Oh, my gosh, my poor brother. I didn't get this. You know, my brother did. You're the man of the house now. They still say um, that stuff. Oh, yeah. How about wacky stuff? Uh, so a, a wacky stuff would be, uh, well, he got what he deserved to a, the family of a gay man who died of AIDS. Mm, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Say again. That's COVID, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, I like, I'll read some of the weird stuff in a minute, but this part of how to help me in my grief. You can't fix me. What a great boundary line. Yep. You can also say, I don't want to be fixed, but mm -hmm. you can't fix me is, is a stronger boundary line. Mm -hmm. Let me be sad. I know how to grieve the best way for me. These are like showstoppers. Don't right? take all my tears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about my loved one. Share your stories with me. And I just want to say um, a good friend and a colleague of mine from, uh, one, from AATH uh, died what, two weeks ago. And last so, mm -hmm. and last night, so we have something on AATH called Laugh Box, okay, where there's lots of interviews done by Chip Lutz, another member, and, uh, you know, podcasts. It's great because you learn about different humor theories, etc. Last night, a bunch of us got together and shared stories. And while there were a couple funny stories, you would think even more from a uh, humor organization, that wasn't the case. 
most people were uh, poignantly, not serious, but poignantly heart-centered. And they talked about what Jill meant to them outside the organization. Right. Who she was as a person. And it was tell stories about that person. And we shared them with her daughter and her husband. What a gift that is. That was just brilliant idea. Just brilliant. I mm -hmm. loved, I, I couldn't share any specifics because, you know, Jill would confide in me about XYZ situation. But uh, I did let Stephanie and Charlie know. Yeah, she talked about you too. In a good way. Yes. <laughs> so here's, here's another how to help me in my grief. Crying is okay whenever I choose. Um, this is hard for me. Don't pretend it's not happening. Wow. Um, this one says, stick with me. Grief is a long road. You could say, stick with me if you choose. I need to integrate it in my own time. Right. So I cannot integrate it in your on your timeline. I have to integrate it on mine. Absolutely. So I only because, you know, I'll read a gossip column. <laughs> Grief gossip. Oh, oh, it can be vicious. Oh, so who's getting the car in the house? Or the ashes. Or the ashes. How are you dividing up the ashes? Ah! I have heard calls come in to hospice families while the patient was still very much alive, and they've asked to talk to the patient, and then they say, can I have some of your ashes after you're gone? Now, I am all for talking about death approaching. I am just not okay with someone asking for scoops of ashes while the ash person is still there in a full body. That's that's not okay to me. <laughs> while the ash person is still there in a full body. I don't think I've ever heard that sentence before. I don't think I've ever said it, but. <laughs> How about this one? Did you get an inheritance? How much life insurance? <gasps> oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. How about this one for grief gossip? They were loaded, weren't they? Shut the front door. Right. <laughs> right. Are you going to put the dog to sleep? Oh, here's something. Ugh. Wasn't he taking his meds? How'd he do it if it was um, they died by suicide? Yep. Which, by the way, so many times I'm so glad the news media is even changing their verbiage. Because Finally. just recently, the two two of the officers that uh, helped stop the attack on the Capitol, they wrote "died by suicide," not yeah. not they committed suicide. Hallelujah! Finally, yes. and acknowledging that those <laughs> losses were actually tied to the experience that law enforcement has when things go terribly wrong when things and they show, they feel like they have to shoulder blame for that or they're right. being targeted as a, as a body of people. And then they take it home and they just can't tolerate it anymore. 
That absolutely. And that's when people start saying, because they want to sound spiritual. So they banter the word God around. They go, they're with God now. How about they're at home with Jesus? How about <clears throat> don't question God? God always knows what he's doing. How about God must really love you to have selected you for this burden? Only because I'm on air, I won't cuss. But you can just imagine what I'm saying in my head when people say that. When they say that in my office, they're frequently cussing right after they spit the sentence out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And here's, here's the uh, advice giving that always goes with you should. You should be thankful. Um, you're so strong. You're doing well. Why didn't you do and then fill in the blank? Or why don't you do? Don't let it stress you. How about he made the decision to kill himself? You know, I understand in suicide, and I, I explain suicide in the immediate moment, maybe differently than someone else does. People often ask, why, why, why? And I often talk about suicide is like a heart attack. There might be signs and symptoms that something's going to happen. Maybe not. It's not always preventable. It's like a heart attack of the brain. And the yeah. brain just flips in a whole nother way very quickly. Even when they say they're making plans, the brain has flipped. And, you know, I can't predict when that will happen. Right. Yeah. So that whole thing about, you know, I'm so sorry. How did you miss that? Would yeah. Blame and then blame on the suicide survivor. Oh, please. Yeah, there's, there's so many things people can say that just, and they're meant, I'm not so sure what the suicide statements, those are just meant to distance yourself from somebody right. else who had a suicide right. loss. But I right. think everyone else is trying to be supportive and they just don't know what to say or how yeah. to manage that. So that's when they start saying platitudes. Right. It was their time to go. They were so special. It's probably for the best. When they get old, it's time to go. Um, it was meant to be. These are all plat platitudes. Oh, only the good die young. I dislike that one amongst the most. <laughs> it's it's hard to hear that one for me also because I want to say, well, the bad die young too. So, uh, what I see in Jen, why do they have? No, no. I was just I several sarcastic comments are running through my head and uh, and I will say this one goes through, you know, that's bullshit, right? So yeah, what I do is say, you know, I just can't conceive of there being some giant chess board then we're all being or monopoly board and somebody right. is moving us all around and deciding who's going to absorb, you know, three deaths from COVID versus a law enforcement officer who dies by suicide in your family. Who's deciding that we need to, this is just life. 
And, it, Renee, and it's not about someone deciding that there's a time and a place. Exactly. Renee Hicks is a comedian. I don't know if she's still out there, but Renee Hicks used to say, have, why do people say this when they find out you have cancer? You don't deserve it. Who deserves cancer? Right. So who do you wish cancer on? Nobody ever says, oh, that person needs to get cancer. I mean, right. really? So, you know, between platitudes, people's versions of you should, and something I just learned, it's those comparisons. And um, when you use this word, and a friend of mine said he has stopped using it in everyday conversation because it's a comparison and you're not really listening. Right. Um, I'm just going to use my cats because one of them died recently. Uh, they died. The good cat died way too young. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> but <laughs> I know, I know. Lots of times people say, at least you have Oscar. So when you use the words at least, when you're making that sort of internal comparison and you go, you know, at least they didn't have to suffer long. Well, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but it's a comparison. And, and it's minimizing your loss. It is. It's not really hearing my loss. It's making you more comfortable applying intellectual knowledge. And, you know, that's something I've had to learn over these, over these years. You know, I might have the knowledge. I might even have some experience. If I want to compare, I wait for a better time and I say, I don't know how it is for you. When my mom died, blah, 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 blah. You know. When so my dad when someone's died. pregnant and you say, say, oh, let me tell you about my labor. I'm pregnant right now. By the way, I'm not. And this is this is my time. You need to stop. Right, right. Just right. hear about my experience. Yeah. Your mom's dying. Let me just help. Can I just hold some space for you? And you tell me what this is like for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just let share. Me just hold some space for you. Yeah. Um, and we can do that even in COVID because we can do that on the phone. We can do that on the front porch, 10 feet apart with two masks on. Now we know. Mm -hmm. And we can do that online. Mm -hmm. I will hold space for you. Mm -hmm. I, um, I give a presentation holding the light. And I talk about um, uh, helpers and healthcare workers and various other jobs. They're holding the light while the other people are working hard with both hands. They're the ones holding the light to the toward a future, not the future, toward mm -hmm. a future. And when you support somebody in grief, it's important to hold the light for them however you can. That doesn't mean you have to call them up. Every once in a while, you can say, I'm holding the light for you. I've been thinking about you. I'm holding the light for you. You don't have no, to go into deep stuff. Go ahead. Someone Deborah else Norwood said, uh, people confuse empathy with information. Yes. And Ann Carlson says, when mom died at 93, people would say, well, she had led a long life, blah, blah, blah. None of that makes anything better. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. You just have to be with it. 
And the best way you can help someone be with it is just help them be with it, not try to make it better. And to demonstrate that to others who are watching you. So yes. if you if you are a parent and you you're helping someone with their a loss, have your kids in some way be on that periphery or be part of it so that they can see this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. And if you do have children, it's important to, you don't have to give them all the information, but to, not but, give them information enough that they learn that they can show up for a crisis in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I love that my, my adult daughter will just say, Checking in, how are you doing with Charlie being gone? She'll say the name, she'll do this, she'll do that. Um, checking in, mom, I I know it's been rough for you. Uh, my, uh, I told you the best from my 10-year-old granddaughter. Sorry, sorry that Char my, she didn't say condolences, but she said, sorry, Charlie died. And I said, you know, it was hard and necessary. And she goes, sort of like Kira, uh, Kira their cat. And I said, exactly, exactly. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Sometimes stuff just happens. And whether they're 93 or 13 or 3, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we still grieve them and we still support those who have had the loss. And, and I want to say, you know, their cat, they let go, they walked uh, Kira to the uh, Rainbow Bridge right when I got the diagnosis of, of Charlie. So I was not able to be as thoughtful and involved with them because I was involved here. And sometimes grief crosses over. Mm -hmm. And to forgive yourself that you're not as thoughtful as you'd like to be or as attentive because you realize you're dealing with your stuff too. I mean, I laugh. It's like when the whole rugby team got their period at the same time in college, living in I lived in the house with them. Oh yeah, that was brutal. Yeah, it I played rugby. Brutal. I volunteer for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I lived there, and uh, <laughs> I mean, we each have our own energy bank, and yes. grievers need to remember that, and those around grievers. When you are grieving, you end up with this fatigue. It's not tired. It's not exhaustion. It is fatigue, like chronic fatigue. It is. Fatigue. And so your energy bank may be usually like this. You may be the energizer body, and it does this. And if someone else is having a loss, you need to make sure that your energy bank is taking care of you and the people around you. And mm -hmm. then you'll eventually emerge and connect with the other and the other ones have their energy bank going down too. So they're collecting from other people. We, we can't expect too much from each other. Uh, you know, the first thing I do when I'm talking with someone who is going through any kind of grief, can you answer these in the affirmative? Did you take your meds? <laughs> if you're on any meds, did you drink some water? Did you get some rest? Were you able to stay out of jail? Did you get some protein that goes in there too? Oh, I never thought about protein. I, I'm like, meds and water. <laughs> and, you know, so, so 
so one of one of my friends was like, well, emotionally, she kept wanting to go emotionally. I said, did you pet the cat? That's an emotional thing. Good for you if you pet the cat. Right. And don't so, kick the dog. We're all good. Stay no, out of jail. All, yep. Stay out of jail. Don't stay out of jail. <laughs> all right. Guys, we're at the end of our time. So we will be here next week. I hope that you will pass us on and be back with us. And if you're watching this afterward, leave us some comments, send us some messages, and we will include them next time. Okay. Take good care, everybody. Bye. Bye everyone. Thank you.